As many of you know, as we've been talking over the last few weeks, one of the great blessings we have that we always emphasize during the preparation for Easter holidays is that we're part of a big Southern Baptist church family of 47,000 churches that cooperate together to accomplish the Great Commission in places that we as individual churches would never be able to do. Places like Peru, places where there's great brokenness and great spiritual need, and people need to hear about the gospel and about the good news of Jesus Christ. So continue to pray for our North American Mission Board, for our missionaries and church planners that work with that ministry. Um, You can also give uh, during the Easter season to what we call the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. There are envelopes that are in the pew racks in front of you that are marked Annie Armstrong. Everything that you put in that envelope, 100% of it, goes directly through our church and into the Annie Armstrong Fund. And that fund supplies about half of the budget of the North American Mission Board. And so you can rest assured that everything you give goes in there. In addition, about 16% of what any of you give through the harvest offering that we do every year, about 16% of that goes to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering from North American Missions as well. So pray and give as the Lord leads you to give. If you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, I'm asking you this morning to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And there's a typo in your newsletter. That's my fault. I put that typo in there. Uh, We're not going to be in Mark 14. We're going to be one chapter over in Mark 15 in just a few moments. But before we look at the Gospel of Mark and, and Mark's account of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, I want us to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're going to take a, just a two-week break from our James series because today marks the beginning of Holy Week or Passion Week. It's a special time for us as Christians to reflect on and remember the most important event, the most important week that ever occurred in the history of mankind and in our personal lives as well. Easter is one of the most conflicted and confused holidays on the counter for most people on our planet. For the vast majority of people, Easter is nothing more than a holiday about the long-awaited arrival of spring. It's about the blooming of the flowers and the trees and the promise of new life birthing from a season of cold dormancy. Easter is about bunnies and chickens and baskets filled with candy and pastel-colored eggs. And at least where we live, there's still very much a religious element to the Easter holiday. Most people in our neighborhood recognize that Easter is a religious observance for most people. And usually it's the one time out of the year when it's expected that you would dress up and attend a religious service. But for genuine Christians and for true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, Easter is more than something leading up to colored eggs and candy. For those of us who've been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, for those of us who've experienced what it feels like to go from spiritual death to spiritual life, to go from from a sense of of being lost and under the weight of our sins to being freed from our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. For, For those, Easter is not about the arrival of spring. Easter is about the arrival of salvation and a Savior. Easter is about the true promise of new life in Christ and what it took for a holy, righteous God 
to bring about the possibility of salvation and redemption for desperate sinners like you and me. Easter Sunday is preceded on the calendar by another important day that we as Christians know as Good Friday. That will be this coming Friday. And Good Friday is recognized as the day that Jesus Christ was nailed to a Roman cross on a hill called Calvary outside the gates of Jerusalem. Good Friday is known as the day when the sovereign Son of the Almighty God willingly gave up His life to pay our sin ransom and to redeem us back from the curse of sin and death. And as we turn our thoughts towards this coming week, this Passion Week, as we begin to prepare our hearts for Good Friday and then for Easter Sunday morning, I wanted us to meditate on some verses of Scripture about the cross this morning. And specifically, the Spirit of God led me in my reading and meditation this week back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1-5, through 5, which I would like to read for us as an introduction to our time together today. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. This morning we're going to be looking at what it means to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I've been serving in local church ministry for 31 years now. And after three decades, I think that this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, more than just about any other, declares the desire of my heart each and every Sunday that I have the honor and the privilege to stand in this pulpit and to open and to declare God's Word. I think more than any other, I'm convinced that we need to hear Paul's words because as a pastor, more than anything else, what I want today is that your faith would rest not in the wisdom and the eloquence of my words, but in the power of of God. That's where I want your faith to rest. I want to see Central Park Baptist Church be a place where people experience the life-transforming power of God to release us from sin and from bondage to sin. I want to see people set free every week to be the people that God has created us to be. I want to see our hearts and our minds be elevated from the day-to-day -day grind of this broken world, and I want to see our hearts and minds set on things above, as Paul says in Colossians chapter 3. I want our hearts to be set on Christ, seated at the right hand of God. More than anything, I want us, whenever we gather together as a people, to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ crucified. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ of Nazareth stands as the singular most important event in the history of of mankind. Over 2,000 years ago, the eternal Son of God and the Creator of all things that we see in this world took upon Himself human flesh to become one of us, to enter personally and physically into our broken, sinful world. He lived a sinless life, 
in order to accomplish the perfect righteousness that God the Father requires of you and me. And then he willingly endured the lies and the false accusations of sinful men, the unjust torture of Roman soldiers, and the agony of being impaled to a Roman cross for crimes that he did not commit. But not only that, the Son of God also endured on that moment at the cross the full wrath and the fury of Almighty God against the sins of mankind that had been stored up for thousands of years. On that Good Friday, the sinless Son of God took upon His body and His soul the guilt and the weight of the sins of the entire world. He took upon Himself the guilt sentence of every Christian who would ever be saved by faith in Him. And imagine that, millions upon millions upon millions of guilty sentences suddenly thrust upon Him at the one time. And under the weight of the physical torture and the sin-bearing of the world, the Lord Jesus died as a substitute sacrifice to make atonement for your sins and my sins. And I want us to feel the weight of those truths this morning as we turn our attention to Mark's Gospel and we read about what happened that Good Friday because I want us to see this morning what it means to know nothing except Jesus and Him crucified. I want us to read in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 6. It says, Now at the feast, he, this would be Pilate, used to release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priest had delivered him, being Jesus, up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with this man you call king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And as they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put on his own clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. 
And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priest with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from that cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus Christ cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. As Christians, when we hear and read those words, I hope that we feel the weight of what happened that day on Calvary's Hill. I hope that as we pause to read over those, we, we could feel for a moment what Jesus endured. Can you see in your mind's eye there, as we're reading those verses, the Son of God broken bruised and bleeding and dying on the cross? Can you hear his cries of agony? Can you, can you feel the darkness and the taunting of the religious leaders and the torturous glee of the Roman soldiers? I think for many of us we can sense that when we read those verses, but the sad reality is while most of us can feel those heavy realities this morning, these words from Mark don't have the same effect on everyone else that it does on followers of Jesus Christ. For some people, those words just bounce off the lid of their cold, dead spiritual heart. For some people, what we just read is just a myth. It's just a religious story. Most people in our world find the idea of a God who requires the death of his son as a ransom to pay for the sins of others to be a completely offensive concept. Some have even equated what we just read as some form of cosmic child abuse. Others shake their heads and wonder, how can Christians read a story about something like that and find any kind of hope and comfort? That's just absurd. Paul wrote earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we're going to read these words in a second, that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. Which is the reason why I want us to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that our faith would not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And that's the great tension of Easter. That's the great tension of Holy Week, because either the message of the cross is superstitious religious nonsense or it is the power of God for your personal salvation. It's one or the other. And that's why Paul said the most important thing that we do in the church each week is to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
The Bible calls us as Christians to be cross-centered or gospel-centered people for whom our entire lives revolve around the glorious message of Jesus Christ on the cross. And Paul would go so far as to say in Galatians chapter 6, Far be it from me to boast in anything except the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul said there's a lot of things that I can stick my chest out and brag about, but far be it from me that I would ever stick my chest out and brag about anything other than Jesus on the cross. So real quickly this morning, I want us to see why from from reading Mark's gospel this morning, why our lives as Christians must revolve around the cross. Why does Paul say that you and I should know nothing today except Jesus Christ and Him crucified? Why this morning when you leave do I want you to know nothing except the importance of the cross for your life today? And there's four quick reasons why our lives must revolve around the cross. The first of those is that the cross repeatedly reveals to us the problem of sin. The cross repeatedly reveals to us the problem of sin. Every time you and I read the accounts of Jesus' crucifixion in the four Gospels, we are faced with readers with, an, with, a, with a, a, a question that needs to be resolved. And that question is this, why is this man, Jesus of Nazareth, dying? And why is it necessary that he dies in such a violent, ugly manner? Why does this man have to die, and why does he have to die such a brutal, torturous death? What has this rabbi from Galilee done that makes the religious leaders despise him so much that they would trump up false charges against him and incite the crowds to demand his crucifixion? Why would so many people in the the crowds shout for the execution of this man with shouts of crucify him? What kind of darkness lies in the hearts of the Roman soldiers who get so much glee from torturing this man by striking him on the head with a reed and spitting on him and pulling out his beard and and taking a, a crown of thorns twisted together and pounding it into his skull so that the thorns begin to pierce literally into his head? What kind of perverted justice motivates a politician like Pilate to condemn someone that he knows to be innocent to death and allow a cold-blooded murderer like Barabbas to go free? And what kind of evil men get so much joy from standing there mocking and taunting a man impaled to a cross who is literally suffocating to death and dealing with traumatic shock and blood loss? What is wrong with the people in this picture? All of these things vividly awaken us to a terrifying and dangerous reality that most of us spend our days trying to avoid thinking about at all costs. And that reality is this, that the human heart can be a dark place that is capable of some of the most egregious acts of evil ever imaginable. The human heart is not a good thing. The human heart, apart from Christ is an evil thing. As a matter of fact, the Proverbs writer says that the heart is deceitfully wicked above everything else in this world. 
And when we ask the question, why is Jesus of Nazareth dying like this? It brings us back to the same answer over and over and over again. He is dying because of the sinful choices of other people. But it's not just the sin of the religious leaders and it's not just the sin of the soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross. The reality is something much deeper because it's not just their sin that nailed Jesus to the cross, it's your sin and it's my sin. And the people that are responsible for the crucifixion of this man are sitting in this room today. It's the sinful choices that all of us have made, And while we may not have physically been there on Calvary's hill that day, we are no less responsible for the murder of Jesus Christ than those who were there. I put this in your notes. The thing that makes the death of the Son of God necessary is the evil of the human heart. When we ask the question, why is Jesus Christ dying? The reason why He's dying is because of the evil of your heart and the evil of my heart and the evil that allows us to pursue things that God has said to us we shouldn't pursue. What caused Jesus to die on the cross is the problem of sin. Because ever since Genesis chapter 3, God has demanded that your sinful choices and my sinful choices cannot be excused or or dismissed They must be atoned for. Someone must pay a price for your sin. And the wages of our sin, the price of our sin, is death and separation from God. And the reason why you and I need to be cross-centered people, the reason why we need to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified is because the message of the cross continually brings us back to reveal to us the problem of sin both in our world and in our hearts. It continues to remind us when we read this account, that sinful choices have consequences not only physically, but spiritually. Your sin costs something, either to you or to Jesus. Sin is not a mistake or a lapse in judgment. Sin is rebellion against the authority of the one who created you for His glory and who gives you life. So sin cannot be just dismissed. It cannot be just overlooked. It cannot be just reclassified. The reality of sin is what gives us a healthy understanding of why the world we live in is so broken and how the only hope of things getting better is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot make the reality of evil a lesser reality through better education or better technology or better self-improvement plans. We've been trying that for thousands of years and the reality is the world isn't getting better. It's getting more evil and self-centered than ever before. We need lives that revolve around the cross because the cross reveals for us the problem of sin. But secondly, we need lives that revolve around the cross because the cross perfectly reconciles to us the justice of God with the love of God. The cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing in this world that perfectly reconciles for us the justice of God with the love of God. Once we understand the truth about the problem of sin and realize that God's Word says not only have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that the penalty, the punishment of our sin is death, you and I are faced with a massive problem. Once we understand the first point, it raises a second question. And that question is this, if God requires that the penalty for our sinful choices is death, 
and a state where we will be completely separated from Him because of our sin, then what hope do any of us have for some kind of life beyond this temporal earthly existence? Let me ask that question again. If God requires that the penalty of our sin and our choices is death and a place where we are eternally separated from Him, then what hope do any of us have for any life beyond this life? If we've already sinned and stand condemned before a holy God and we already bear upon ourselves the sentence of eternal death, then why not just spend the rest of your life living for yourself, doing whatever it is that you want to do? If there's no hope for life beyond this world, then why can't we just live however we want to as long as we can? And when you look at our world today, that's the primary religious philosophy for most people in our world. You see, as condemned sinners, life in this world only makes sense if there's some kind of hope of salvation beyond this world. As those who live under a sentence of condemnation, life in this world only has meaning and sense if there's any kind of hope for something beyond this world. And that's the gospel, the good news, that the holy God of the universe has provided a way for sinners to be saved. For you and I, to have any hope of salvation, God must put in place a plan in which the righteous requirements, His holy righteous requirements are completely fulfilled and the punishment or the penalty for our sinful violations are completely paid while at the same time extending grace and mercy to those of us who are sinful violators. God must find a way to treat us not as our sins deserve, and this is where the love of God and the justice of God most, must both be satisfied at the same time. The plan of God meant that for God to reconcile His justice with His love for us, that He Himself must absorb the weight and penalty of our sins so that His justice could be satisfied, and yet He could also extend mercy and forgiveness to guilty sinners. And that plan would be accomplished through the death of the Son of God who would come to live a sinless life on our behalf and die a sinner's ransom in our place. You've heard me use this verse many times, but one of my favorite verses of Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In your notes, I put it this way, at Calvary. When we look to the cross, we see the inevitable collision between the righteous justice of a holy God and the infinite mercy of a loving God. And the reason why we need to be cross-centered people is we need to be reminded not only that we are sinners, but that, that we have a, a, a God who has enacted a plan in which His righteous judgment against our sins can be satisfied, while at the same time extending mercy to those of us who deserve death and separation from Him. And only the cross of Jesus Christ provides the answer to man's greatest dilemma. God couldn't just act as though our sins didn't happen because justice does not ignore wrong. Listen carefully to that. God couldn't just say, well, they don't know any better. 
they're doing the best they can. I'm just going to ignore and act like they didn't do anything wrong because justice does not ignore wrong. In order for forgiveness to ever be extended, someone has to absorb the debt. And Christ did that by absorbing our debt upon Himself so that God the Father can lovingly extend grace and forgiveness to sinners. The reason why we need to be cross-centered people is because only the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ presents to us the problem of sin and only the cross of Jesus Christ reconciles for us a God of perfect justice with a God of perfect love. But thirdly, we need to be cross-centered people because the cross vividly displays for us the unparalleled wisdom of God. The cross vividly displays for you and me the unparalleled wisdom of God. Look at these verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the foolishness or the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I want to return to something I said before, which is that the the true message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is becoming more and more a rejected message in our 21st century Western culture. The idea of substitutionary atonement, where a holy God requires the death of Jesus on the cross in order to pay the penalty for human sin, is seen more and more in Western culture as a ridiculous, outmoded thought. Modern religious scholars have tried multiple ways to remake the gospel into a message of God's love without the idea of atonement. That God just loves us, so He just just extends forgiveness to us because of His love. But as I said a second ago, the problem is that real love and real justice doesn't overlook wrong. Something has to be paid. The message of Christ crucified is still a stumbling block to some and foolishness to many in our culture today. And then Paul comes in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians and says, I want you to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I want you to think about nothing as the people of God every day except Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. And as a pastor, more than anything, each and every week, I want you to hear the message, Jesus died in your place. For over 2,000 years, Satan has tried to raise every objection possible so that people would not hear and trust in the good news of Jesus Christ crucified. For 2,000 years, people have tried to substitute something for the gospel and make the message of salvation more palatable and less offensive to a lost and dying world. We keep trying to think of ways not to call sinners sinners and not to call sin sin, and not to talk about Jesus dying on the cross and sing about the the blood that was shed for us, and instead we we try to give people personal religious self-improvement plans. 
We've tried to attach the grace of God to the church and make the church the vehicle of God's grace and, and the church to be a place where grace and forgiveness are found in being attached to the church and performing religious deeds. So, so what that means is as long as you show up for church, as long as you go through the religious motions, that God is some kind of accountant in heaven is going to take that in, into, into, into stock. And, and all that really matters is that you go to church and that you do what the church tells you to do. But the reality is there's going to be millions upon millions of church members who miss heaven and bust hell wide open because they've trusted in the church rather than the gospel for salvation. And we've tried to make the good news about Jesus a message of personal fulfillment and dismiss the necessity of repentance and substitute instead the message of blessing. So instead of speaking about the reality of sin, we talk about speaking positive messages into reality. We distort the gospel to be a message of God's desire to bless you financially or physically or materially. And we give people a message that puts all the hope of salvation into this world and leads them on a damning road for hell. We've tried dozens and dozens of ways to remove the offense of the cross and in the process we've polluted the gospel and led millions upon millions onto a comfortable religious road to destruction. And what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 is this, it's in your notes, the holy God of the universe cannot be found through the power of human intellect but through personal faith in the foolish message of a crucified Savior. If you want to find God, you're not going to find God by listening to religious scholars debate. You're not going to find God through the power of human wisdom. You're not going to find God through a message that remakes the gospel into something that removes the cross and the necessity of atonement. You're only going to find God through faith in the foolish message of a Savior who was crucified for your sins. And people may still demand ecstatic signs and sometimes remake the truth of the gospel to be philosophically more palatable to a lost world, but the reality is that the sovereign God of all creation cannot and will not ever be found through the power of human wisdom, but by repentance of sins and faith in the foolish message of Christ. But then finally, fourthly, we need to be cross-centered people and we need the cross, because the cross graciously provides for us the only hope of salvation. The cross graciously provides for us the only hope of salvation. Like Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to some and foolishness to others, because the message of the gospel is still the only hope of salvation for a world of lost and dying sinners. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And I think there's a lot of people in the church today who are ashamed of that message, but I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We live in a world that is starving for truth. We live in a world that is starving for real hope while many in the church are serving up nothing more than the leftovers of cold, dead religion. The truth is that most people in our world haven't embraced the gospel 
Not because they find the message offensive, but because they've never heard it in the first place. Too many of us have gone far too long nodding our heads in acknowledgement to Paul's words of not being ashamed of the gospel while never actually sharing the good news of Jesus with anyone in the process. People in our world are looking for hope. But real hope cannot be found in a religious moral improvement plan because no one can act their way into a better relationship with God. Hope cannot be found in remaking the gospel and taking away the offense of the cross because a false gospel and spiritual lives never, lies never give anyone true hope. I put this in your notes. I love what the hymn writer says in the hymn, The Solid Rock. My hope is built on what? Nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. There is no hope in this world apart from faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and so I look at, invite you to look to Calvary today to a bleeding and dying Savior and what you will see is the hope of salvation for the entire world. May our hope today be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. May, may we dare not trust the sweetest frame, but may we wholly lean on Jesus' name. May we stand on Christ the solid rock because as the hymn writer says, all other ground is nothing more than seeking sand. Without Jesus, there is no hope of salvation. But because Jesus Christ went to Calvary's cross, there is the hope of salvation available to all who would trust and repent. So real quickly, before we wrap up and dismiss, how do you know this hope of the gospel? The hope of the gospel is simply four words. Number one, the hope of the gospel is God. God is a a perfect creator who created all things for His glory. Acts 17 says, He made one man from every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards Him and find Him. And yet He is actually not far from any of us, Paul said. God created you. He, he spoke you into existence for the purpose of of being in relationship with Him and bringing Him glory. But the second part of the gospel is man. It's you and me. That you and I have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, Romans 5.12, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So you and I have a sin problem. We've, we've turned our backs on God. We've turned our backs on His authority. We've decided to do life our way. And in the process, we bear the weight of our sinful choices. So you have God, you have us, but then you have Christ. The Bible tells us that Christ came to, to live His life in perfect obedience to the law of God on our behalf and to die on the cross in our place. Just as Romans 3.23 says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24 says they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Romans 5.8, God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So what do we do? We respond. We respond by confessing with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in our heart that God has raised Him from the dead. And if so, the Bible says that you and I 
and be saved. That's the message that our world is starving to hear. That's the message that tens of thousands of people in our community around us have still not yet embraced. And that's the hope of our salvation. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me this morning as we, as we wrap up. And as we do, we want to offer an opportunity this morning for the cross of Jesus Christ to become something more than just a historical story that you've heard about, but to be the hope of salvation that you trust in. And so if you're here this morning and as we've been talking through and looking at these texts, if, if you've come to believe that you are a sinner who is in need of a Savior, if you've come to believe that you need to trust Jesus Christ for salvation, that, that you need to plunge your hands into the blood of the old rugged cross where sinners who are plunged beneath that blood lose all their guilty stains. And we want to give you an opportunity this morning to do that. You can do that this morning as we sing this song. It's an invitation to respond to the gospel. And maybe you need to come and, and just say, Pastor, I need to get saved. Maybe, maybe you're not quite ready to walk in an aisle in front of people, but you want to hang around afterwards and you want to grab me and say, Pastor, I need to talk to you about God. Maybe you're here this morning because as a Christian, you've just kind of lost the awe of the cross and You've allowed your life to, to know many things other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And this morning, you just need to come and surrender afresh and anew to Him. This altar is open if you need to pray this morning. Whatever it is that you need to do, we, we ask you as we sing this song to respond to the Holy Spirit today. Father in heaven, thank you for the old rugged cross. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to go to the cross to die in my place. Thank you, Jesus, for bringing about over 30-something years ago the opportunity for me to hear the message of the gospel and to believe and to trust it. Thank you that I stand before you today saved and forgiven and in a righteous relationship with you, not because of the righteous deeds that I have done, but because of the Son of God who died in my place. And I pray, Father, for everyone in this room that they would know that today as well, and for everybody who's watching online. God, if there's someone here today that needs to be saved, God, you save them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.